Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rabbit. Thank you for joining me for this podcast. Um, my guest today has an extraordinary background. Uh, he's a musician, he's a filmmaker, he's toured and known some of music's greatest artists, uh, whether it be rock and roll, blues and soul. But he he has, as you'll probably admit himself, an interesting hobby. Um, he's actually reached out to people who maybe thought they didn't like the guy um, because of the colour of his skin. I'm talking about Daryl Davis. He's a, a, the piano player. He's a qualified musician. But he's also what they call a race reconciliator. He sits down with people and tries to persuade them that um, the colour of the skin doesn't matter. It's the personality and the ability to connect and the basic humanity that counts. Um, that's all I'll have to say for it right now because I'll let Daryl tell his story. Daryl, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Tom, very much for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, but before we get into the work you do uh, in talking to people who are... Um, for want of a better term, uh, extremists, uh, people who have a particular perspective on on race or religion or creed, uh, there are those who listen to this who may not automatically know your background. What does your career look like if you had to sum it up on the back of an envelope for someone who doesn't know you? It looks like a mess. <laughs> That's what it looks like. That's it's all start. over the place. <laughs> well... Uh, professionally, I am a musician. Uh, I'm age 63, and uh, I got my degree in music, and I've been a performer ever since I graduated college. So when was going, uh, I graduated college in 1980, and so okay. it's like 41 years. I've been making a living playing music, touring around this country, playing locally, and touring abroad around the world. Uh, but during my uh, during my music tours. I ran into some people. Uh, you said you put it as uh, some people who may not particularly like me. Um, that's putting it a little bit mildly. These people uh, did not like me so much. They joined an organization that practices hating people, not just not liking them, but actually hating them because of the color of their skin and because they don't believe in the things that these people believe in. So specifically, we're talking about uh, white supremacists. And uh, in particular, I started with the uh, Ku Klux Klan, which is, of course, you know, very big in this country. The Ku Klux Klan is an American creation. It, it is as American as baseball, apple pie, and Chevrolet. So that's, uh, that's where I said the, the, the career is a mess, because I've got these two different uh, careers inter, you know, intertangled as a race reconciliator meeting with these people, talking with them, trying to find out what is going on in their minds that, that caused them to have this kind of uh, animosity or the, need, or the need to feel separate from other people or, or even the need to feel supreme to other people, thus making them a white supremacist. So uh, that, you know, music has enabled me to, to meet a lot of people all across the spectrum because everybody likes music, even white supremacists. So I'll give you an example of uh, something that happened with me. So let's go back to when I was age 10. I was in the Cub Scouts and I was the only black scout uh, in this parade. Everybody else was white. The sidewalks were lined with nothing but white people. 
uh, who were waving and cheering us and smiling at us as we uh, you know, conducted this parade with several other organizations. And uh, we got to a certain point in the parade route when suddenly I was getting hit with uh, soda pop cans and bottles and small rocks and debris from the street by just several of the white spectators, just a small crowd of several mixed in with the larger crowd. And my, I was age 10. My first thought was, oh, these people over here, they don't like the scouts. That's how naive I was. I did not realize that I was the only scout getting hit until my scout leaders came running and covered me with their bodies. And these were all white people and they escorted me out of the danger. And I kept asking them, well, why are they doing that? Why are they doing that? I, I didn't do anything to those people. And all they would do is kind of shush me and rush me along, telling me everything's gonna be okay. They never answered the question as to why this was happening to me. So I was mystified, I had no idea. Um, at the end of the parade, when I returned home, my mother and father who were not in attendance um, were cleaning me up and putting band-aids on me and asking me, how did I fall down and get all scraped up? And I told them, no, I did not fall down. This is the result of people throwing things at me. And for the first time in my life, they sat me down and explained to me the definition of racism. Now, I'd never heard the word racism before at the age of 10, which would be kind of an oddity for a 10 year old in 1968 in this country. But now here's the important part that you have to understand. I was not the typical American um, 10 year old in 1968. At the age of three, I began traveling around the world with my parents who were US Foreign Service. So I was an American embassy brat living in different countries around the world every two years, starting at the age of three. And when I was overseas, uh, which was my first exposure to class, to, uh, to school, my classes were filled with kids from all over the world, Japan, Russia, Czechoslovakia, France, Germany, Italy, Nigeria, you name it. If any of those countries had an embassy where we were stationed, all of their kids went to the same school. So my classroom was multicultural before the word multicultural ever existed in the English language. So to me, that was the norm. You know, I was around people from all over the world. That was my baseline. That was my first exposure to school. And your, so, par your parents were a part of the sort of diplomatic corps, were they? Exactly. Precisely. Precisely. And my, my father was a cultural attaché uh, for the American embassy. Okay. And then later on became the public affairs officer, PAO. All right. So, you know, you're, you're in a country for two years and then you come back home here to the U.S., and then, you know, a little while later, you're assigned to another country. So, um, you know, when I would come back home, this would be in the 1960s, uh, the schools I would go to here in my own country were either all black schools or black and white schools, depending upon whether it was a still segregated school or the newly integrated school. And understand, even though desegregation uh, was passed by our Supreme Court in 1954, it didn't just change overnight like a light switch. It took years and years for schools to integrate and desegregate, okay? okay? So, you know, even in 1968, some schools were still, you know, segregated just by zoning, you know, where people lived and things like that. So I would either be in all black schools or, or the newly integrated black and white schools. So this one time, you know, I'd come back at the age of 10 
and um, and I was in a in a newly integrated school. I was one of two black kids in the entire school. So uh, that's when we did this this parade, and uh, and when I got uh, hit with, by these objects. So you know, like I said, I was never exposed to racism before. I was around people all over the world, so I, I didn't get it. You know, I didn't understand it. And um, but there was no I reason thought, for you to. What's there? Pardon me. There was no reason for you to understand it because you didn't exactly, matter. exactly, exactly. So you know, I, I I was not experiencing it, even though my classmates may not look like me or, and we may not speak the same language. We got along fantastically. We played together. We worked together. We had slumber parties together. You know, there was nothing racist. Um, if you opened the door to my classroom back then, you would say, oh, you know, this looks like a United Nations of little children, because okay. that's exactly what it was. All right. And, and, and here's something interesting. Um, you know, we used to have black and white TV. And, and then, you know, one day, you know, color TV came in and we were all excited because, you know, it, it added a whole new dimension. Beautiful. You know, everybody wanted to watch color TV. Well, that's what I was living in overseas in color TV. But when I would come back to, to home to here to the States, it would go to black and white you know, because we didn't have that kind of diversity in this country back in the early 60s. It was just black kids and white kids, you know, mostly. And of course, today, you know, we have a diverse population here in the schools. So literally, I was living 10 years ahead of my time when I was overseas. That multicultural scenario had yet to come here. So I was already prepared for it 10 years before it arrived. And then, of course, you know, a lot of my peers back home here were not prepared for it. So because this happened, I formed a question in my mind at the age of 10 back in 1968. And that question was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? Because it baffled me that someone who had never seen me, never spoken to me, who knew nothing about me would want to hurt me for, by throwing things at me for no other reason than the color of my skin. It made no sense. So for the next 53 years from that point, I've been looking to the, for the answer to that question. Um, I, I would ask people, why, why does this happen? They would say, oh, Daryl, you know, that's, some people are just like that. You know, that's just how it is. Well, that was not a good enough answer for me. So after I graduated college and I began playing professionally, I was playing in a country music band and we were playing uh, at a place in a town called Frederick, Maryland, about an hour and 20 minutes outside of Washington, DC, a place called the Silver Dollar Lounge, which was known as an all white bar. Now there were no signs that said all white, you know, uh, but it had that reputation. And black people did not go there because they were not welcome. And when you go somewhere where you're not welcome and alcohol is being served, it is not a good combination. So here I was in this place with this all white band, all white place playing country music. And after the first set, I was walking towards the band table when uh, a, a gentleman came up behind me and put his arm around my shoulder. Now, I don't know anybody in here, right? So I'm turning around trying to see who's touching me. And uh, it was this white guy, you know, a decade, a decade and a half, maybe almost two decades older than me. And he said, he's smiling. And he says, man, I sure like your piano playing. I said, thank you. I shook his hand. And he says, you know, this is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And I was surprised. I was not, I was not you know, offended. I was just surprised that this guy who was much older than me did not know the black origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's piano style. 
And I proceeded to tell him that both Jerry Lee and I, you know, listened to the same influences, black blues and boogie woogie uh, piano players. That's where this rock and roll rockabilly yeah. style came from. Well, he didn't believe me. He, he'd never heard a black person play like that. So he did not believe me. And I said, listen, man, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a friend of mine. He's told me himself. The guy didn't believe that either. But he was fascinated that he wanted to invite me back to his table and buy me a drink. So I go back there. Uh, I ordered a cranberry juice. He pays for it. Then he takes his glass and he clinks my glass and cheers me. And then he says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. And now I'm even more mystified. Like, how could this be? Because at this point in my life, I had sat down with thousands of white people, had a meal, a beverage, a conversation. How was it that this man had never done that? So innocently, I asked him why. And he did not answer me. I asked him again. His buddy sitting next to him elbowed him. and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. And I said, tell me. And so he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, I burst out laughing at him because now I do not believe him. I know a lot about the Klan and I know they don't just come up and hug a black guy and wanna praise their talent and hang out and buy him a drink. You know, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. So I'm <laughs> laughing at him like, <laughs> so I'm laughing because, you know, I, th I think this guy is, you know, pulling a joke on me. And he goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, flips through it, and hands me his clan membership card. I take this, I look at it, and I recognize the Ku Klux Klan insignia, which is a red circle with a white cross and a red yeah. blood drop in the center. Yeah. I said, whoa, you know, this thing is for real. So I stopped laughing because it wasn't funny anymore, right? And I give it back to him. And we talked about the clan and some other things, but he was very, very friendly. And he gave me his number and wanted me to call him whenever I was to return to, to perform in this bar. So I'd call yeah. him and he'd come, he'd come. He'd bring Klansmen and Klanswomen to see the black guy who played like Jerry Lee. That's how he referred to me. And uh, you know they'd gather around and watch me play. And some of them I would meet on the break. Others, when they see me coming towards that table, they'd get up and move across the, the, the room to another location. So the, the message was, you know, we don't want to touch you or talk to you. We yeah, just yeah. want to look at you. Yeah. So, um, you know, this went on until the end of that year. And then I quit that band and I went back to playing uh, rock and roll and whatever else was going on. And uh, it was a long time later, it dawned on me, Daryl, the answer to your question, how can you hate me? You don't even know me. That's been plaguing you since the age of 10. It fell right into your lap. You didn't even realize it. Who better to ask that question of than someone who would go so far? as to join an organization that practices hating people. Okay. You know, get back in, co in contact with that guy. You know, he would have the answer. Get him to connect you with the Klan leader for the state of Maryland, which is where I live. And then interview the Klan leader and then go around the country, interview various leaders there and rank and file members and write a book because my book would become the first book written by a black author on the Ku Klux Klan from the perspective of sitting down conducting in-person interviews that had never been done before. So fast forward, I, uh, I reconnected with that guy and uh, he reluctantly gave me the contact information for the leader of the state of Maryland. Uh, he, he did not want to do it because he was fearful for his own safety and for my safety if you were to, to connect a black guy with this guy. 
And so, you know, this guy genuinely, you know, genuinely liked me and wanted to be protective of me. Uh, and he warned me. Well, first he said, you know, uh, I'll give it to you on condition that you don't tell him where you got his personal information. The, the leader's name was a fellow named Roger Kelly. So I said, okay. And he warned me, he said, Daryl, do not fool with Roger Kelly. Roger Kelly will kill you. And I'm like, well, that's the whole reason I need to talk to him. Why would he kill me? Just because I have black skin? I need to understand this mentality. So that's why I need to see him. So he kept warning me and I said, okay, you know, I'll be careful. So that's where that started. Now, can, can I take you back one step? Because sure. when we when you explored the issue of the mixed multicultural classrooms in overseas countries when your parents were stationed uh, outside of the US, mm -hmm. you mentioned their diplomatic attachments. Now, there's something else. I think there's something else going on here, and feel free to, to correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, did the work that your parents were doing also give you the, the, the confidence and the ability to engage? Because diplomacy involves, by its very nature, communication. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, you're spot on. You know, you nailed it because my father's job as a diplomat, his job was to, he, he's a representative of the United States government. Yeah. His job is to establish better relationships between our government and the governments of the foreign country to which we were assigned. So that's what, that's what you know, being a diplomat is, public diplomacy. And uh, so <laughs> just as a kid, I was always around it. You know, I was always around it. I, I was meeting presidents of countries, various ambassadors, and all that kind of thing. Uh, kings, princesses, all kinds of people, you know, involved in politics and, and you know, making our relationships better. Starting at the age of three for me and all through my early teenage years. So I was around that diplomacy and I guess I would absorb a lot of it. Now, uh, had I not had that experience, um, would I be doing this kind of work today? Probably not, probably not, you know, but, I can tell you something, uh, Tom, you know, when you combine my childhood travels with my parents, with my now adulthood travels as a professional musician who also travels around the world performing, when you put those two sets of travels together, I have now been in 57 uh, countries on six continents. So all that is to say is that I have been exposed to a multitude of ethnicities, skin colors, religions, uh, ideologies, you know, all that persuasions, all that kind of stuff, cultures, and it has all impacted me. And what I have concluded is, no matter how far I've gone from my own country, the US, whether it's right next door to Canada or right next door to Mexico or halfway around the globe, no matter how different the people may be who I encounter. They don't look like me. They don't speak my language. Maybe they don't worship like me or uh -huh. practice the same culture. I always conclude one thing when I return home. Everybody I encountered is a human being. And as such, they all want the same things. We all want the same things. These five core values, 
We all want to be loved. We all want to be respected. We want to be heard. We want to be treated fairly. And we want the same thing for our family as anybody else wants for their family. And as long as we employ those five core values in whatever society, in whatever culture we may find ourselves visiting or whatever, and we're unfamiliar with that culture, if we employ those five values, I guarantee our navigation will be much more positive and much more smooth. And so that's just a natural thing for me. Um, so when I, when now I, I encounter the world of uh, white supremacy, I just consider them another culture. That's all, because that's what they are. They are another culture. Yes, they are my fellow Americans, but they are, are of another culture, another mindset. But I employ those five values because they want the same thing too. And that is what has, I believe, led to my success. And that is also the same thing as practicing uh, diplomacy. You know, um, I allow them to be heard, whereby most people, you know, you listen to somebody tell you that you're inferior, you know, and, and they're better than you, then you, you, you let your emotions get in front of you and you, you yep. know, respond, you know, negatively towards them. And then it becomes very contentious. And then the whole thing devolves into nothing. I'm a firm believer that a missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution because nothing gets resolved without having a conversation about it. So I allow people to be heard, even though they may be offensive to me and insulting me. Um, I, I give them that respect, understand something. I'm not a racist, I'm not a supremacist or a separatist or a nationalist, I'm none of those things. Um, but when I, when I say respect, I may not respect what somebody is saying, but I respect their right to say it. And when I, when I give that person that value, that, you know, those, that one of those five values, yep. they feel compelled to reciprocate and allow me to express my views. And then that's how things get to change and how we influence uh, one another. Is that how your journey that's documented in um, the accidental courtesy came about? Yes. Um, Absolutely. Having watched it and having looked at a range of things uh, that, that flowed through that, uh, how did you? How did you feel? I mean, basically sitting down in a concentrated way with each of the supremacists that you spoke to, or each of the sort of extremists, if I can use that term. How, how was that? Well, I mean, I've, I've been doing this kind of work for 37 years. So it was nothing new to me in 2016, which is only, you know, five years ago. Okay. And as you saw, as you saw in the, uh, in the documentary, uh, the most contentious uh, scene was between myself and people who look like me. Some, uh, some members of, of a, uh, one of the chapters of, uh, or one of the factions, I should say, of uh, Black Lives Matter. It, got, it became very contentious because they could not understand why I would sit down and, and have a conversation with white supremacists. You know, that, that, that's beyond their scope of, uh, of, of uh, purview. You know, they, they just could not get, get with that. So they began insulting me and calling me names, et cetera. But, you know, I've already been to where, they, to where they've never been and perhaps they will never go. Um, I, I've seen people of different 
beliefs and things come together and get along. I've seen white supremacists change because I've been a part of their change. You know, you spoke to Jeff Scoop. Jeff Scoop was, was a neo-Nazi for 27 years. And 25 of those 27 years, he was the leader, the commander of the largest neo-Nazi group in this entire country. And, you know, so that you know, that's pretty hardcore. That's, that's very hardcore. Yep. But today, Jeff Jones is on, I mean, uh, uh, Jeff Scoop is on the other side of the, uh, of the fence. Now he is working towards pulling people out of that movement, de-radicalizing them, and helping to prevent others from being radicalized into such movements. So he's done a total 180. And Jeff is doing a fantastic job uh, at doing that uh, with his uh, organization uh, Beyond Barriers, which I'm proud to say He's invited me to be on board with them and work as a teammate, you know, which I'm doing as well. Uh, so, you know, people can change. If if we did not believe people can change, then what's the point in all these thousands of people marching in the wake of George Floyd's lynching? What's the point in, in us marching to, to boycott the Montgomery bus lines so we could sit in the front of the bus or, or marching so we could get the right to vote or that we didn't have to drink from a separate water fountain. So people can change. Uh, the change in this country, yes, it has come very slow. But uh, and it's, it, you know, but we've come a long ways and we still have a long ways to go. But the fact is, if you don't think people can change, then you're wasting your time, you know, uh, giving that effort. And, and what's odd is the same people who, who go and march back and forth in front of police departments across this country, yelling and screaming at the police uh, for shooting somebody holding a cell phone, a black person or whatever, or holding their wallet, shoot them 40 times and kill them. Um, why, are they, why are they yelling at the police? Because they want change. They want this, this, this racist profiling to stop. And they believe that you know, you've got to educate these police officers that, hey, we are human beings. Well, if they didn't, these same people who are trying to educate the police are the same people criticizing me for trying to educate uh, the Klan, <laughs> you know? And, um, the, you know, they're calling these police officers white supremacists. Um, perhaps, well, I know some of them are white supremacists because I know some cops who've been in the Klan, all right? But so you're calling people in a badge, a uniform, and a gun a white supremacist, and you're trying to educate those people. And, and I'm trying to educate white supremacists in a robe and a hood. What's the difference? Why criticize me? Yeah, it's the same it, thing. It is. Um, what you're talking about is a, um, a kind of a bigotry that sits on both sides of your... Exactly. Nobody, yes, nobody has a monopoly on racism. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to paint, paint you know, the Black Lives Matter movement with a broad brush. Okay? Um, and let me explain something perhaps to, uh, to your, to your uh, listeners who may not understand this. Black Lives Matter is not an organization. It is a movement. Uh, the founders, um, when they put it together, they did not want to centralize and be an organization with chapters all around the country. They didn't even trademark the name. So anybody can get out there and form their own Black Lives Matter. And that's exactly what has happened. So now you got about 90 different factions, not even chapters, factions around the country. And not all of them are on the same page. 
There are some chapters that rip me up and down, you know, criticizing me. And there are other chapters that contact me and say, hey, do you give workshops? Can you teach us to do what you do? So, you know, they're all over the map as well. And it's like having too many chefs in the same kitchen trying to do the same recipe. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. Uh, unlike, say, the NAACP or the Red Cross or the Boy Scouts of America, these are centralized organizations where you have a headquarters, you have a one president, and you create policy at that headquarters and disseminate that policy to all the chapters around the country. So the Red Cross chapter in New York operates the same way as the Red Cross chapter in Los Angeles. But this is not the case with Black Lives Matter. It's not a centralized thing. It is a decentralized thing with no one leader. Every little group has their own leaders. Some Black Lives Matter factions, that's why you know chapters belong to an organization. Factions are standalones. So um, every faction has its own leader. Uh, some factions consist of mostly black supremacists. Some factions consist of blacks and whites working together. Some have more white people in the Black Lives Matter faction than black people. Um, some are very aggressive. They wanna tear up stuff and spray paint graffiti all over the place. Uh, BLM here, BLM there. And then there are others who wanna sit down with the uh, county government or city government legislature and try to develop bills to be passed to, to make legislation for certain things, to, to remove uh, names from buildings that were named after slave owners or take down Confederate statues or things like that, you know, do things legitimately. So, you know, their methods are all over the place. That's why I say it's like having too many chefs in the same kitchen. At the ground level, when you talk to people, things seem to uh, connect with them, but some of them have even got giving you their clan robes when they realize they don't have any further need for them. Um, right. Just out of curiosity, um, what's the collection like? Are you running out of wardrobe space? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. I have tons of stuff, not just robes, but I have flags and patches and all kinds of uh, things. But uh, I, I do keep the majority of it locked up off-site. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh, and so people ask, you know, why do you have this stuff? Why don't you burn it? Well, no, I'm not going to burn it. Uh, it is a part of American history. And, you know, you don't burn your history. You, you, you keep it. You put it in a museum. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the shameful. And, and the Klan is certainly ugly and shameful. White supremacy is certainly ugly and shameful but you don't destroy the history of it because you learn from it. That's why we have a Holocaust museum here so we can learn from it. And so uh, I have uh, my, my nonprofit, my 501c3, and I will open a, my own museum at some point in which I will display all these things. And that's what I'm working on now. It's, it's interesting that you're driving a project like that um, and the fact that you've got a constructive attitude to presenting it uh, in a in context, um, the other thing that is challenging in the present environment is that it appears that political leaders, and I'm not, yeah, in America and elsewhere. 
while you're busy trying to get people talking to each other, there appears to be a, a polarisation in the public uh, public square. Do politicians in the current era make your kind of work easier or harder? They make it more plentiful. They make it more plentiful. Um, I, oh, I you mean going, you've got more work to do yeah, as opposed exactly. to it being any harder to do? Right, exactly. And, you know, listen, I, I think that this time right now, I mean, yes, we see a lot of negative stuff. We see a lot of divisions. We see families breaking up over even even tight, tight families, you know, falling apart because, uh, you know, one person in the family voted for this candidate and the other one voted for that candidate. And so now, you know, I'm not speaking to my sister or I'm not speaking to my uncle or my brother or, you know, whoever, because they voted for the wrong candidate. Well, I mean, we're seeing this, people, family divisions happening, which is really ridiculous. You know, I'm, I'm talking to people who, who form organizations who hate me and you can't even talk to your own family member. That's crazy, you know? So there is a need for conversation, but this country has come a long ways. It still has a very long ways to go but I'm seeing progress and the needle is turning a lot faster because, and let me point it out to you. All right. I'm, I'm going to show you the difference between <clears throat> the uh, protests and marches of yesteryear and the protests and marches of last year in the wake of George Floyd. Let's take a look, for example, let's, let's pinpoint uh, the beginning of the civil rights movement. Let's say 1955 with uh, Rosa Parks and Dr. King and the bus boycott, right? Yep. On through 1968, when uh, Dr. King was assassinated. Um, when you look at, 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 the, at those marches and those sit-ins and those boycotts and protests, what do you see? You see a big ocean, a big sea of black people with uh, a smattering of a few white people mixed in. These white people, you know, they, they got the vision. They understood what was going on. They wanted to participate and support us. We've always had white people involved in our stuff. Back then, not a whole lot, but, you know, you saw some visionaries who were there, okay? But because there were so few white people, the, the needle turned of progress turned very slowly. The pages turned very slowly in our history. We made progress, but it was slow. Okay, now fast forward to 2020. Um, George Floyd gets lynched by the Minneapolis police. And then you look at those protests. What do you see? You see an ocean of Black people and an ocean of white people marching together. They come together. This collective voice came together. In the past, uh, a police officer being charged for, for shooting a Black person that, that was very, very rare, very rare. And if the police officer was charged, it took months and months to get him charged. And then when it came to court, it was, it was dismissed. You, you, you never found these police officers getting convicted of shooting and killing a black man. But now you are, it's happening like that. What is the difference between the protests of last year and the protests of yesteryear? The collective voice. And so when we see that, that's what we need to focus on. We need to focus on bringing more people 
of different backgrounds together for the same common humanity cause. And it was that the, the collection of blacks and whites marching together is what has brought those changes about much more rapidly. And, and, and listen, we have seen a larger ripple effect than we've ever seen in our history as a result of these recent marches. While these marches were geared towards the police, the ripple effect was NASCAR banning the use of the Confederate flag, the state of Mississippi removing the Confederate portion out of their flag, uh, food labels like uh, Uncle Ben's and Aunt Jemima changing their brand, their labels, um, legislation being passed to remove Confederate statues, to change names of buildings named after slave owners, police officers being arrested and charged and convicted a lot faster. So it is that collective voice that is causing that those pages to turn a lot faster in our history. And that's what we should not forget. And that's the lesson that we should learn. We need to recruit more people of, 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 of other backgrounds to come together and, and be whole. One of, the, one of the debates that we have at the moment, and this comes back to what you said about the Ku Klux Klan and um, allowing people a voice. Uh, there is a discussion in the modern day, probably more common among younger people than, than people like yourself, which is... Are you, uh, are you calling me old? <laughs> 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 okay, I'll accept it. Okay, <laughs> you, you're probably older than some of the young people who insist on deplatforming everything they dislike, mm -hmm. whether it be on Facebook or Twitter or elsewhere. When you look at the current situation with social media and other other platforms, if I can put it that way. Um, with with your collective experience um, and wisdom and, uh, and all of that, what do you think about that attitude that some people have, which is you, you need to de-platform every single sort of extremist or every single extreme voice? Is there, is there wisdom in your view in doing that? Well, I wouldn't do it if I didn't think there was wisdom in it. Yes, I do believe there's wisdom in it. Everybody should have the right to be heard uh, yeah. and, and to have a platform. In this country, unlike in some countries, uh, do we have our flaws? Absolutely, and we have plenty of them. But one thing that we do have that, that I respect is we have the right to freedom of speech. We can say what we want to say. Also in this country, we have the right to hate, but we don't have the right to hurt. So we can, we can hate all we want, but when you cross that line and begin hurting the object of your hate, that's when you get into trouble. And so why, why do I say people should be given a platform for this? The reason, why, the reason people present that they should not be given a platform is because they're afraid when someone you know, uh, propagates a hate speech, there's, there'll be somebody who will fall into it and be recruited and become radicalized and, and then that movement grows larger. Um, I'm a firm believer. Yes, there are a few people who will fall prey. There, there's always sheep 
And, you know, then there's the leader and then there's the sheep who follow. But I think it's more important that we allow this because there are people out there who are very smart people and you cannot address anything unless you know what the problem is. So when you allow this platform to happen, there are people out there who, who can see it and say, oh, I get it. Here's how we need to fix it. There's some very smart people out there. So, you know, it's like, um, if you're not a if you're not a mechanic and you're driving down the highway and all of a sudden your your car starts banging and making some kind of noise under the hood, you know you're going to pull into the into the nearest uh, auto repair place and uh, and try to get it fixed because you know something is going on the car is not running right. But when you get to the auto repair place, for whatever reason, it always happens to us. The car stops making that noise, and so you're trying to tell the mechanic. He's like, you know, I can't find the noise. I don't hear it. You know, so I can't fix what I don't hear. But then if, if you happen to pull in there and he hears the noise, I know exactly what it is. You know, it's, it's, it's a loose spark plug or whatever it is. And he fixes it. All right. So in order to, for us to fix these problems, we have to hear them. You know, we, we can't worry about somebody being radicalized into it because, you know, if, if we're that worried about it, then we are calling ourselves a bunch of dumb people who are going to fall for anything. And yes, there are a lot of dumb people in this country, but there are also a lot of smart people in this country, far smarter than I am. And, you know, we, we, we need those minds to come together collectively and decide how to address the problem. But in order to address the problem, you got to hear what it is. So let that person be a platform. Give them a platform. Let them express their concerns. You know, they're, they're, they're getting wiped out. They're afraid their identity is being erased. They call it the browning of America, white genocide through miscegenation, because there are so many different people coming to this country who are non-white, and they feel, you know, that they're, they, they become tribal. And they feel that their identity is, you know, is being erased. We've so, got, so, we've, we've got the, some groups here in Australia that uh, sure. have risen in prominence. Um, they use the same terminology. They use the terms white genocide. They use the... Mm -hmm. The, the, the great replacement um, right theory they and then typically their uh, their cohort is a is younger uh, the younger people um, their uh, our security agencies sort of have noted that they're in their sort of they're in their twenties so they're caught into a movement at a very young age. Right. And if you don't give them that platform or you deplatform them, you know, you're not you're not getting rid of them. They simply go and find another platform and they build there. So and then eventually it becomes a pressure cooker and it finally explodes. So, you know, that's what you don't want to happen. So you you would prefer people. I heard. Um, but in hearing them, there's also. The counterpoint, which is, you can have free speech, but that doesn't mean you're free from criticism, does it? That's right. You're absolutely one hundred percent correct. So I, I get criticized all the time, and that's fine. <laughs> you know, I, you know, it tells me I'm doing the right thing. General, uh, I'm mindful of the time, and uh, it would be great to talk to you again. Um, Absolutely. What I would like to touch on, uh, particularly 
um, at the conclusion of this discussion um, is to get some thoughts from you on what's in, what politicians who are involved in uh, thinking about extremism uh, in Australia need to keep in mind. What what is it that we that that our lawmakers need to think about when they're reflecting on uh, the challenges posed by extremists in in society? Okay. Number one, we need to work together. We need to address their fears. Um, A lot of it is steeped in ignorance, ignorance of what's going on. Um, When, you know, ignorance is, is the parent of fear. Ignorance gives birth to fear. We fear those things of which we're ignorant. And if we do not address the fear, the fear will escalate and turn into hatred because we hate the things that frighten us. Um, If we do not address the hatred, the hatred in turn escalates into anger and then becomes destruction. We want to destroy the things that we hate because they frighten us. But guess what? They may have been harmless and we were simply ignorant. So, you know, what, we, what, we, what politicians spend a lot of time doing is they address things like destruction. They address things like hate and fear. I say, forget about the destruction. Once it's destroyed, it's not coming back. Okay, as sad as that is. Forget about the destruction. Forget about the hatred. Forget about the fear. Those are byproducts. Those are symptoms of the root cause. The root cause is ignorance. If you cure the ignorance, then there's nothing to fear. With nothing to fear, there's nothing to hate. With nothing to hate, there's nothing to get angry about and and destroy. The good thing is there is a cure for ignorance. And this is where we need to focus um, our time, our politics, our, our finances, and our efforts. The cure for ignorance is called education education and exposure. And this is where politics need to, need to come together and, and agree, because that's a bipartisan thing. They can, they can agree, we all need better education, you know, and, and people learn certain things. So when you, when you cure that, address that ignorance with education, you've taken away the ignorance and therefore there's something to fear. That's what we need to do. People are not being erased. People are not being replaced, you know? It's called evolution. This is what happens over time, you know. And you educate people in that regard. Um, I don't believe that you know that you can convert somebody. You know, people always say, you know, you know, Daryl converted X number of white supremacists or KKK people. No, I did not convert anybody. Not even one. I am the impetus for over two hundred to convert themselves, and I do that by giving them a better alternative by giving them an education, exposing them to something that they otherwise are not getting. You cannot change somebody's reality. One's perception is one's reality. Whatever somebody perceives, that becomes their reality. Whether it's real or not, it's their reality. And you cannot change their reality. What you can, because the more you try to change their reality, the more they're gonna defend it. So what you do is you give them a better, perspective, offer them another perception, another perspective. If they resonate with your perception or your perspective, 
they will then change their own reality. I'll give you an example of that. Let's say you have a seven or eight year old kid and uh, he goes uh, with his friends to some magic show, maybe the school or whatever, to, to a magic show. And the magician uh, on stage asks for a uh, female volunteer. So 50 women raise their hands and he picks out one of these women and he calls her up on stage. He puts the microphone in her face. What's your name? Where are you from? And then he <laughs> asks, asks her to climb into this box, this long box. It looks like a coffin, right? And he tells her to stick her feet out the holes in this end and stick her head out the hole in that end. And so she does, and he closes the lid, and then he takes a saw and, and cuts that box in half. To your seven or eight-year-old kid, that man just cut that woman in half. And to make it even more real, the magician separates the two halves. The half with the feet sticking out, he moves over here to stage left, and the half with the head sticking out over to stage right. And then he walks over and talks to the head, and the head talks back to him. You know, this, this kid is like, wow. And then the magician brings the two halves back together, opens up the lid, and out pops the woman, full form, no blood, nothing. And he's coming home, he's telling you, Dad, you know, I just saw this magician, you know, cut this woman in half and then put her back together. And, and you're like, no, son, you know, that, that's an illusion. No, no, it's not. I saw it. I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. You cannot tell him what he did not see. That is his reality, you know? And, and the more you attack his reality, the more he's going to defend it. So you cannot change yeah. his reality. Okay. So what you do, what you do is this. You offer him a different perception. You say... Well, I, I hear what you're saying. However, is it possible just maybe that the woman that he picked out of the audience, maybe she works for him. Maybe she was a plant in the audience and she travels with him to every show. She knows the trick and she comes up. And when she climbs in the box, there's already a pair of mannequin legs lying on the floor of the box that are wearing the same shoes and stockings that she's wearing. And she sticks them out those holes and she brings her own legs up under her chest. So she's all curled up on one half of the box. So when the saw passes through the box, her whole body is already over here when he separates it. So you're seeing dummy legs and her whole body's already over there. And then when he, and then when he brings the two halves yeah. back together, she pulls out the dummy legs, leaves them in the box and she climbs out. And so the kid's like, hmm, I guess that would be the only way that could work. So you've offered him a better perception and now he changes his own reality. That's how you do things. You don't attack somebody's reality. And that's what I do with these people. I offer better ideas. Uh, and yeah, let that, them come to the conclusion that they that they may have been wrong. So you, you lead them along gently. So you don't... don't, don't I, I understand what you're saying. You... Uh, you, um, you might have been the spark for change, but they're the ones that have right flipped um, exactly. themselves. Exactly, and that and that will be a lot stronger if you try to force somebody to do something. Absolutely. Look, Daryl, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. I look forward to talking to you uh, again at some stage. Absolutely, and thank you very much for 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 indulging me and having yeah. me. Oh, that this that, the pleasure's all mine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, we will do. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye.